welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest on a special Halloween episode. We have Mona Bassett. As Vice President of Digital Services at Intermountain Healthcare, formerly SEL Health, Mona Bassett leads digital strategy and transformation, including the development and implementation of the digital technology roadmap. She was also appointed by the Governor of Colorado to serve on the state's eHealth Commission. Prior to joining Legacy SEL Health, Mona was a leader in the technology organization at Atrium Health, leading consumer engagement strategies. Previously, Mona spent almost 10 years at Bank of America, where she led various marketing and communications teams. Mona holds a bachelor's degree in English from the University of California at Irvine, a master's degree in communications from Cal State Fullerton, and a master's degree in business administration from Wake Forest University. Mona was also recognized by UC Irvine with the Lods and Laurels Distinguished Alumni Award in 2019. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you on today and for our Halloween episode. Uh, you've led such a fascinating career. I mentioned it in the bio, but just to summarize again, you got your bachelor's degree in English literature. You started your career in healthcare communications over in California, and then you moved all the way across the country to pursue a marketing opportunity with Bank of America during the peak of their digital transformation years in the financial services industry. And then you found your way back to healthcare, marketing with Atrium Health, and you are now the VP of digital services at Intermountain Healthcare. That is a truly fascinating journey spanning multiple industries and several verticals. Yet from what I heard uh, through some research, you actually wanted to be a lawyer and or professor originally. So I'm so curious, you know, why was that the case? And then what happened? You were an excellent researcher, <laughs> I have to say. So uh, I don't I don't think my teenage self would have seen me in anything related to technology at all. Back in the day, I wanted to be a lawyer and I actually began UC Irvine in a sort of pre-law type of major. And I just, I had, I had always loved writing, reading. Uh, I think all those things are, are very uh, pertinent to being a lawyer and, and persuasion. Uh, but once I got to UC Irvine, I had taken a, a writing class and a few other classes that really inspired me to want to go into English literature uh, and be a professor. And I also wrote poetry and I just, I felt like that was the place for me. And plan on doing that. I actually started a different graduate program in English literature after UC Irvine. And once I got there, it was great. But I quickly realized that while I loved writing, I loved reading, I loved just the analysis, trying to figure things out, teaching others, I wanted to sort of take that into a more uh how do I how do I say it uh, diplomatically? Uh, more just direct impact on business and people, and that's where I began my communications master's program. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome! And then, what inspired you to pursue marketing full time? Like, obviously, this direct impact, but what's kept you going all these years? Yeah, so I I did grow up in marketing before I moved to technology. 
And again, I just, I loved the, the business side of it. I loved the, the storytelling, the, basically that focus on creating messages that resonate with people, creating messages that encourage them to take a specific action. And I think as I look at what I'm doing now in technology, it's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. It's telling the story, it's it's engaging, it's it's making people excited to engage. And I don't think there's much difference in that, except to me, now that I'm on the technology side, I feel, again, that direct connection to making things change, making things work, making things happen for our audiences. And Mona, you were at Bank of America for a number of years, and then eventually you moved into healthcare with, with Atrium, and you, you've been ever since. What was the the tipping point for you to shift into healthcare? You know, I had such an incredible experience working at Bank of America. I learned so much just around marketing and business and consumer experience. And I wanted to take that same focus and everything I learned and apply it to something that I thought was truly meaningful to me. And certainly banking is meaningful. Financial services are meaningful. You 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 feel good about helping consumers go through their financial journey the way they want to go through it. I want to just take that next step. And I don't think there's anything more just direct and intimate than healthcare. I mean, people's health is the number one or should be should be one of the most important things in uh, in their lives and to be able to join a not-for-profit organization that was making an impact in the communities in such a positive way was really where I thought I needed to go next and, and when you kind of like com- compare and contrast the consumer experience in financial services versus now healthcare um, what do you feel is very similar about the two? And then what have you noticed to be very different? It is very interesting because when I began at Bank of America, that was in late 2003, early 2004, and they were really just beginning to accelerate their digital experience for consumers. And just you know, being in healthcare for uh, several years now, it's sort of that journey started again for me. So it was very deja vu. And I think it's it's absolutely the right direction to go. And it was really a focus on, again, that engagement with the consumer and making it easy for them to get their jobs done. Basically, it was really giving consumers more control in that experience. Previously, you know, financial services organization, kind of this big traditional company. They had all the answers. They would tell you what you need to do. You come to them. And that really transformed in sort of that mid 2000s, where it was giving people the empowerment to actually do what they needed to do on their own and feel good about that. And I think additionally, Bank of America was probably seeing kind of the the future where lots of customers and probably you will never be able to hire enough customer service representatives or or uh, banking center employees to be able to take care of everybody. 
And I think they they were really astute in seeing that pretty early and, and started setting that up. So I think um, as far as similarities go, it's that focus on consumer, focus on you know consumerism, engagement, allowing, allowing patients and consumers to uh, have the control to do what they need to do in their health journey. So I think that is very similar. I think probably um, one of the biggest differences is, is, you know, working for a not-for-profit is very different from working for a, for a public uh, company, very large organization like Bank of America. So when you're working for a not-for-profit, especially in healthcare, I mean, you are really your budgets are much smaller, of course. And so you are trying to determine what things have the biggest impact and focus on those, focus on the business cases for those and and get your get your funding to do some of those very impactful things. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, we definitely have more constraints. A hundred percent. And I think it's a really good segue, Mona. You're now with Intermountain and you're leading their digital efforts. And that is so broad. That is like, you know, that encompasses so many different technologies across the enterprise and so many different stakeholders. It's not just marketing anymore. It's everything from RPA and internal solutions to consumer and patient experience tools. And, you know, even digital marketing falls under your umbrella. So I'm curious, you know, you've brought up the importance of storytelling and you've brought up the learnings that you've had leading uh, Bank of America's transformation. How do you think coming from a marketing background actually supports this new re- this new kind of broad responsibilities of all technology? I think it has helped me quite a bit. And we talked a little bit about consumerism. So that is number one translatable skill from marketing to bring that into healthcare technology. I think additionally, even though I'm part of a technology organization that just does amazingly innovative things, some of that behind the scenes stuff is pretty complicated and a lot of people really don't care how it's done. And it is very important to be able to sell what we're trying to do. So as far as having the marketing background, it's how do we describe this strategy or this initiative in such a way that not only will people understand where we're going, but they'll understand where we believe we will have an impact to the consumer, whether that consumer is a prospective patient, a patient, one of our caregivers, which is what we call our employees. It's it's all very similar. And so being able to tell our story, convince, uh, you're giving stats and data and stories and explanations to getting things approved. There's a lot of prioritization that has to happen in this space, as you can imagine. We actually have a wonderful situation where there's no shortage of great ideas, but how do we determine what we do? And so we are using storytelling, we're using presentations and persuasion to, to help people understand the projects we think will be most impactful. How do you, I guess, prioritize, um, you know, what you do? I mean, it sounds like there's no shortage of, um, it's funny, it's like, there's probably so many things people think should be priorities, but as you know, um, better than, than most people, um, in order to prioritize, that means you have to say no, probably to most things, or at least like not right now. So, um, and especially now that you're you're overseeing things for this combined larger system with Intermountain there are probably even more ideas than there were when it was just, you know, SCL, for example. So how do you go about 
prioritizing like what is actually important for the next you know 12 months for example yeah it, it is amazing how many ideas come through and they're all great they really are and i i, I never like to squelch ideas like especially good ideas and all of them are are excellent so we do a few things we look at certainly our the areas that we're trying to impact where where do we have the biggest need so there are a lot of things that maybe we'll say, okay, we're not going to do that now, but let's see if we can do that down the road. But what are the things that we have to make a huge impact on now? And those are things primarily around access, like online scheduling, expanding online scheduling, those sorts of things. It's about uh, allowing patients to sort of be guided through their journey and having them make the right decisions without really having to think about it too much because it can get pretty complicated. How do we transform our contact centers to be omni-channel places where, where people can, can get access the way they want? So some of those things are really high on the list. Um, we also have set up a very comprehensive uh, subcommittee and steering committee structure. Again, lots of ideas. So as we bring those ideas together, we actually allow our partners and the business to help us prioritize them. We really shouldn't do the prioritization. We can, we can bring ideas to the table. We could say, here's how long it's gonna take. Here's how much it's gonna cost. But we have these uh, 100 ideas, which do you all think are going to be most impactful also? So we, we partner very, very closely and uh, we, have a, we have a big backlog. Gosh, it sounds like you get a lot of feedback on like, what are the actual like top organizational objectives for the next, you know, 12, 24 months. And then you layer and okay, here's how digital can support those specific objectives in the near, I guess, near term and then long-term afterwards. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because technology is, is not overhead. Technology is a strategic asset for the organization. So if we're doing our jobs correctly, we are supporting the strategic goals of the organization and coming up with innovative ways to do so. We are not ones to sort of, you know, just chase the, the next shiny object. I mean, if that shiny object is going to help us meet our goals, then yes. But we are, we are very aligned with the strategy of the larger organization. And maybe on that note, I mean, I'm assuming that um, you, maybe you allocate some resources or time for like, I don't even call them moonshots or like bets you make every now and then maybe it's not 90% of what you do, but you kind of leave some room for, for innovative things. Um, is that what you do? Or how do you think about uh, allocating room for like those, those moonshots that you might consider? You know, we, we don't have sort of like a slush fund or anything like that um, to do innovation uh, as far as inside our, our organization. Um, Intermountain actually has a um, ventures and foundry group and, and they're doing some just incredible things. Um, and sometimes we'll, we'll see some of those items, but for our team specifically, um, we, we think about just about everything in the same way, just very innovatively, very creatively. This, this team that I run um, is extremely creative and curious, and I would say courageous too, because I think it takes a lot of courage to wake up every morning and think about 
the facts that you might not know what you're working on today or what you might explore today. It, it takes a special kind of person to actually thrive in that kind of organization. And we have amazing, amazing people. So I think as we, as we look at opportunities, I mean, we're always thinking that way. Everything we get approval for has a solid business case behind it at this point. And uh, we feel, we feel really good about that because the, um, the priority things that we're focused on are supported, are funded, and we can move forward with them very quickly. You know, Mona, I really appreciate, um, you know, just kind of laying out those skill sets like creativity, or courage, and then curiosity. And you've shared in the past kind of your design thinking framework, and it's very much around kind of this clean slate, this almost tabula rasa kind of approach where you don't know anything until you find out. And um, that curiosity really plays a, a huge role there. Um, you've mentioned also in the past about listening to patients and really how that's so important in uh, designing any products that you're making. And I believe you've established a patient and family advisory council. Could you just share a little bit more about that initiative and why you feel it's so important to have patients uh, as part of the process? Yes. Yeah, so the patient and family advisory councils are across the entire organization. They were in place uh, before I got here. They're, they're really run uh, by the patient experience groups. And they are a collection of patients really across our different communities, different ages, different backgrounds. And it is really nice to be able to have a group of very passionate people who are always willing to help to go to, to ask questions about certain approaches we're trying to take, testing certain things. Because as I've said before, we, we think we know what patient wants or a consumer wants. I mean, we're all, we're all patients, we're all consumers, but somehow we just never really know <laughs> until we until we ask, until we observe, until we watch. We also leverage some other types of tools where we can do user testing kind of on the fly. I've just found over the years that we go into a situation with a specific hypothesis and we're almost never right. <laughs> Which I'm not sure what that says about us, but <laughs> what it says is that, you know, human beings are, are complex and that they're all different. And if we can go out and watch, learn, ask, listen, we will get the answer and we will get the right answer rather than just sitting in our offices trying to figure out what we think might work. And I just have so many stories like that where we were just so convinced that mm. this thing or this ad or this product or this word would be would be engaging and and would be the right way to go but it's uh we're often very surprised we're actually working on um, a new website project where we're going to bring in all of the disparate regions and organizations together and we are relying very very heavily on our consumers to really tell us where would you expect to find this thing how would you take this action it's it's a very comprehensive way to look at a project and ensure that you will get the best result possible. We'll never be perfect, but the best result possible. Mm -hmm. So it reminds me that and, um, decades ago, I was involved in this um, design, this online community, not, not healthcare related, but, but same concept where I think we spent six plus months working with an agency to build this entire online social community. Um, 
that we then made available to an entire organization and, and no one used it. <laughs> and I can't believe we spent six months and tons of money building this out. And it, it's so obvious now that you have to get that, that continuous feedback early on from, from your, your users and your partners. But, um, back then, gosh, it's crazy to me how, and, and probably still happens today. <laughs> oh yeah. There, there are so many of those stories. So many of those stories. Absolutely. We want to do everything we can to avoid <laughs> that happening. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to actually uh, switch gears a bit and talk about um, AI. And um, I, I had the fortune of um, watching you on a panel at, at the Becker's Digital Health event uh, a couple of weeks ago. On, and you were talking about um, using AI to help the workforce. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things I remember you saying was uh, at Intermountain, you've automated, I think, 2,000 processes, I think, to help something of that nature. Um, and you also, I love this, you mentioned that you empower staff to be automation designers. Um, and then one last thing I just want to comment on that you said was you, you really focused on what are the high ROI but low risk use cases that you could start with when implementing AI and automation um, so that you can kind of see some early wins and build momentum. Do you mind unpacking a bit more about some of those topics and, and your approach to what's been a very successful initiative using automation and AI um, to help providers? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's interesting. Our automation designers are basically developers that we've trained. They're, they weren't developers before. We trained them to uh, develop on some of the, uh, I think, more, more straightforward kind of low code uh, types of tools that we have across the organization. And I think this also gets back to no shortage of ideas. And so if we're training, I want to say we have like 400 of those automation designers, which we used to call citizen developers, but they didn't like that. name, <laughs> And so they wanted to be called automation designers, which I think is brilliant. It is a great, it's a great name for what they do. But these are people who sit deep in our organizations who you know have have day jobs basically and so they are the best people to be identifying what can be automated and there's a lot of just simple things that they do every day that can be automated we have certain hr processes that are automated supply chain processes um, we are looking into digging deeper into financial uh, revenue cycle processes that will be automated. And those are to me pretty, pretty low risk because you are, you're sort of not, uh, you're not messing with clinical care quite yet. Although I think there's really good opportunities there too. Uh, I think people are more open to it. I think as they're seeing their own jobs and saying, gosh, you know, this task is really repetitive. Why am I even spending my time doing this? I could set up a bot to do it. Um, and those bots, they're calling digital coworkers, like my digital coworker is doing, you know, this process. So anything that really requires like a lookup of something, a checking of something, um, all of that is really uh, ripe for automation. And then, you know, as we, as we look at further kind of bolder prospects, we can look at things that are more clinical in nature that again, May, may be sort of repetitive. Why does a, a physician have to do this kind of thing? Maybe they can check it, you know, at the end. So it's sort of this digital coworker uh, and human caregiver partnership. So especially for some of those more uh, risky prospects, they'll at least have coworkers working together to, to check things and 
and stuff like that. But it's it's pretty limitless. And with the employment environment the way it is, with the shortage of, of caregivers across the board, we we will have to figure out a way to do this. That's amazing. Um, and I'm curious, are there any thoughts yet in terms of, because you brought up, you know, it, there's not a layer of complexity when you start getting involved in clinical care, you start getting into, you know, patient safety uh, issues that you have to keep in mind and all that. Has there been any kind of early feedback or, or thoughts on how you might approach those topics differently and the type of care you might have to give to those conversations with clinicians as you potentially roll out some use cases? Yeah, so I, I think everyone is truly understanding that there, there is a need to automate certain things and as much as, as we can, where it makes sense. And we, I had mentioned our very comprehensive digital steering committee and subcommittee structure. We just added another subcommittee to digital called digital health. And this will focus on automation and care really that doesn't require a person to deliver it. So this isn't like virtual you know, video visits because a provider is actually doing the visit using technology, but they're actually doing the work there. So we would be looking uh, at things like, you know, triaging. We would look at things like uh, automating sort of digital therapeutics where people have may have long-term conditions or they just discharged from the hospital with a certain uh, surgery and it's sort of nudging them along the way to take certain steps, to tell us if there's anything wrong, um, have them take certain actions, where in most of those cases, it truly is guiding them in an automated fashion until they need us and they need an intervention with a person. That subcommittee is being formed right now and it has a combination of clinical and operational people. And so I think we we will have a really good uh, representative state of what, what is possible, what is what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, and we'll we'll have those discussions as we go along with all the right people. So again, it's not just technology saying, hey, this shiny new object, we need to go do this. Um, but to really look at it in a, in a creative, but very well-informed manner. Mm-hmm. It, and it sounds like part of the strategy is like, let's make sure that we're involving those, you know, more clinical oriented folks on the digital health side early on. So that way, you know, yeah. um, that feedback is given early, that, that direction is being shared early on. So that way there's no surprise folks are being collaborative from day one. Absolutely. And what we deliver, I mean, is supporting those providers. So they have to be involved at the start. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, Mona, uh, about two years ago now, kind of the height of the first wave of the pandemic, you were estimating way back when, you know, 15% of previously in-person interactions would move to being remote uh, in the future, post-pandemic. I'm curious, has that estimate changed in in your mind now, you know, two years later, we're using more and more digital for all these different interactions. Is your estimate higher today? I am really sorry to report that I think I may have overestimated. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, it was very fascinating to me. And I was was just thinking about that the other day. So we are probably around five to six percent ongoing uh, Mm -hmm. of, of visits 
that are uh, done via video. Hmm. And um, I, I expected it to be higher than that. And I was trying to, to think about why that might be. And I think um, during the pandemic, of course, there was really no other option. It, you know, you had to do it. And we, of course, saw lots of people take advantage of it. And I was hoping that by, by really sort of requiring that to be the, the mode in which you get care, people would get used to it. They would try it out. They would love it. And people did really love it. Uh, but after they could go back to their mm. providers, it, uh, it definitely went down. And mm. I have a couple of theories around that. I don't know if any of them are right. Um, and I should probably do a design thinking project to figure out what the actual answer <laughs> instead of trying to guess. <laughs> but in my mind, it may have been sort of, oh, wow, that was, that was the pandemic. So we just did that during the pandemic. So we don't need to do that, to do that anymore. Um, we are doing different things around how to uh, provide just different options for people to, to get care. And I think um, introducing that as an option when they're searching for care is going to at least put back in their minds that this is a really convenient way that you can get care and you can still get care. So I think we we may see an uplift a little bit around sort of the messaging it goes back to the marketing. It's mm -hmm. uh, making sure that the message is hitting somebody in the right way at the right time. Um, so we're working on a few different projects to just introduce it as, as a potential option to what they may have thought that they needed to to make an appointment for, you, you know, a design thinking project would be fascinating because I'd, I'd be curious. Like, is, is it to your point, patients just you know maybe didn't realize it's still an option? Because I'm, I'm imagining that if, if it's something that truly doesn't need an in-person encounter, like you don't need more tests in person, you're just really having a, a verbal conversation. I've got to think so many patients are glad not to travel, sit, and wait. I mean, it strikes me as, as surprising that folks who could do it virtually would still want to go all the way in person, but there's clearly a good reason. Um, I, agree. I agree. I mean, we're all in healthcare and if I don't have to go in, I don't want to. <laughs> right. Even people in healthcare don't want to go in. <laughs> so much easier just to sit here and do it on my computer. That's so funny. It's so true. 100%. Also, I think, Mona, you know, you've given your thoughts in the past about some of these emerging pain points that, you know, you know are on, this, on the, the horizon and uh, in particular, you've mentioned it earlier in the conversation, but access, of course, and so potentially, you know, adding this as a, a modality could help with access and the work you're doing around triaging and, um, you know, reaching patients where they are. The other emerging pain point was around the silver tsunami. So that's obviously uh, been in the media uh, currently and is definitely not going away. How do you view the role of digital in tackling both of those challenges? I think digital is is absolutely going to play a fundamental role in that. We talked a little bit about what the the employment market looks like right now. I think providers, all, all our caregivers are really bearing the burden right now of this very unusual labor market. But I I would anticipate that we will still see these pressures going forward in many years to come. There's there's providers who are retiring in droves. There are uh, nurses who are just leaving the profession just to leave it and going to do something else. So nobody will have uh, enough providers, caregivers 
to have a one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, meeting, basically appointment with everyone who wants one. And in some cases, they may not need that one-on-one -on -one appointment. So I do think that digital therapeutics are going to play a huge role. I mean, we thought about you know the pandemic. That was a crisis. That was a crisis, and it moved people to different care modalities. This whole, you know, being able to support patients across communities for all of healthcare, I think we may get to a point where that's a crisis too, where we just cannot see every single person in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And in those cases where they don't need to be seen one-on-one, -on -one, we have to have a good solution for those patients. We absolutely do. Um, because across, across healthcare, we're just, this is gonna be the only way that we'll be able to take care of, of the people in our communities, bring them through their health journey, keep them healthy. And that, that's gonna be a really good way to do it. That's, that's my prediction. It's funny. It feels like in almost every other industry as a consumer, I mean, you don't like all these experiences, but you've kind of gotten used to like, if I, if I call into support for, you know, my, my telecom kind of provider, I've gotten kind of used to, okay, I might be on an automated conversation. Um, and, I'm, and at some point I may talk to a human, um, but I've gotten kind of used to the fact that, okay, there are parts of it where maybe I don't need a human to interact with uh, and healthcare. I, we're starting to get there, but it's that, that, it's that unique situation where that whole empathy piece is so so important, um, and I think you've talked about in the past in the past how um, how do we not lose that? Um, and I'm wondering, like, do you think there's ever a a future where, and this maybe be like decades of the future where, you know, AI and avatars get so good, um, almost like deep fake like where we don't as a patient realize we're talking to an AI. Um, and if it is that good at some point, do we care? That's, that's a loaded question. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is a fascinating question. But first of all, I want to ask you why you're still calling your telecom. Like I completely, I try to avoid <laughs> talking to any person. So I'm happy <laughs> to do a chat bot or figure it out myself in my app or anything like that. So I commend you. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a better telecom company. That's what I'm hearing. I think yeah. so. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, it's so interesting. I I actually think that an experience like that where it's sort of a you know deep fake or a person that we we might think is an actual person, I think that's a really creepy experience. And um I think people are really smart. And I mean, we would have to tell them that this is not a real person, but I think it's super creepy to kind of see, see this face and it's talking to you. And um, it might be, it might be kind of a, a fun novelty maybe for a little bit, but uh, I just, I don't know. I, I personally, I'm not sure, but um, I would love to ask. <laughs> I would love mm -hmm. to ask people what they want to do with that. Um, I have seen, I know there are companies out there right now who are doing that it's it's these avatars that are speaking to you in a human way. I, I think we can still be human in other way, other automated ways. And I think part of being human is understanding what people want to see, what they want to do. And if we have um, you know, a chatbot or something like that, we have to give people options to opt out of that. 
and allow them to choose what they need to do. I think um, also giving them a great experience if they actually decide to use it and they'll come back and use it again. Um, I mean, I think we've all had experiences outside of healthcare where we, we maybe found ourselves in the automated experience, not on purpose, but it actually ended up being super easy and we'll, we'll do it again. So I think the human, the humane, you know, humanity kind of part of that is truly giving people choices, understanding what they want to do and not forcing some weird experience that they didn't want upon them. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, um, Kind of in line with that, one of the potential modalities that patients or consumers could choose is to speak to a human. And with that, there are many challenges, like we've kind of talked about it earlier, but documentation and, you know, getting the provider, whoever it is, to be more in touch with actually listening to the patient and and hearing what they're saying. Um, I think earlier this year, you actually shared on another podcast kind of one of these glaring limitations of, it was a story of um, a patient calling in to reschedule their appointment. And because the provider was so busy with the documentation, they weren't able to really hear what the patient was saying. And I think they they missed a, a huge opportunity to actually connect with the patient. Do you know what story I'm talking about? And, yes, okay, yes, I do. Do you mind sharing that? I have almost all the details, correct? Yeah. <laughs> so this was... Um, this was another sort of design thinking project that my team was working on. We were doing uh, mostly observation, so ethnography in one of our contact centers. This is a previous organization. And so we we just sat around listening to phone calls come in and we we listened to what the patient was saying. We listened to what the agent was saying. And there was a certain uh, case where somebody had called and said, I'm really sorry, I missed my appointment today. I need to reschedule it. And so the agent is so busy copying and pasting this person's phone number, looking it up in the two different, three different systems, I don't even know how many, uh, trying to find this patient quickly so they wouldn't have to ask for all their information again. So the intent was really good. It was, all right, let's find this patient so I can help them. But what ended up happening is the agent was so consumed by all the clicks and all the steps and all the searching that the, the agent did not hear the patient say, the reason why I, I missed my appointment and I need to reschedule is because my grandson was shot and killed last night. Jeez. And the agent said, okay, great. Well, let's get that rescheduled for you. And this could have just been an amazing opportunity to show empathy to this patient about this terrible situation. And the patient was being still, still being so responsible to call and say, I'm sorry, I missed my appointment. I need to reschedule it. So what that told us was that the tools were failing our agents. Mm -hmm. And if the agent was so consumed by all the swivel chairing and going into all these different systems, they weren't able to actually listen to what the patient was saying. And so we determined at that point, wow, they need some better tools. They needed a, you know, an agent desktop with a screen pop that brings up the patient's name, that brings up uh, the fact that they, you know, they missed their appointment and all this other information that they could have help develop that relationship while getting that patient's job done. 
Mm -hmm. So that's just, that's one example, just around listening, observing, uh, and making sure that our caregivers have the tools they need to do their best work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just speaks to the how how large and and needed that promise of the digital coworker is and really just supporting their efforts not necessarily giving away all the answers and providing the care but just to support uh, the human element i That's love great. that we will never never replace human beings but if we can use our digital coworkers to help make our jobs easier and help us do better a better job then that's where you want to focus mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of that that phrase, you know, people don't remember, you know, exactly what you say, but they'll remember how you make them feel. And I can only imagine someone walking from that conversation, like they're not gonna remember the words, but they're gonna remember like, did, did that person in their line recognize the situation I was in? Did they show empathy for me? And in the in the best case scenario, they do. And they go, wow, like that's the inner mountain brand. Like yeah. that's what you want. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, there's so many touch points with a patient and with a consumer, um, digital and non digital and physical, and they all have to feel the same. Mm -hmm. I love that. So uh, just to round out these questions, Mona, today, there is an explosion of patient facing innovations. There's everything like we've mentioned from chatbots to digital care journeys, there's remote patient monitoring. What in particular are you most excited about today? There are so many really interesting things out there. I uh, am very excited about automation and it's it's because uh, I want to do a couple of things. One is to give our providers, give our caregivers a an amazing place to work, an amazing place where they can be as productive as possible, use their highest skills and really, work on the things that they intended to work on when they joined this organization and when they chose their career path. So everything from, you know, could we, could we automate things in the background, um, you know, imaging, uh, could we uh, expand? And we're doing some things around um, ambient documentation. So things that people just shouldn't have to do that can be automated that allow them to focus on the things that are more meaningful and more valuable to a particular to a to a particular patient or a group and that you know that also goes to the digital therapeutics we we've got to figure out um, how to do that well and how to do that effectively because it will enable us to take care of more people in a meaningful way so those are some things that that I, I definitely keep in mind and think about quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's the steak and not the sizzle, right? It's the, the right. real like meat and potatoes right. of it. I love that. Um, well, Mona, being mindful of your time, let's flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. This is just five questions to get to know Bye. you better for our <laughs> audience. Uh, the first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? So I would have to say Radical Candor by Ken Scott. Um, I think it was, gosh, it feels feels just like yesterday, but I think it was like 2017 or 2018 yeah. that she published that book. And uh, there, there are a few books that have totally changed my perspective. And that is one of them. I have given that book to many people and mm -hmm. loaned, it, loaned it out to many. And basically the, the crux of the, message is that uh, in order to 
have you know productive and happy teams and be a great boss, you need to be able to give feedback directly while also caring for that individual. And so that caring and directness must be present for feedback and improvement to work. So if those two things are not present, so if you're direct, but you don't really care about that person, that's probably like the worst, the worst place to be in. Then you're just a jerk. <laughs> and then if you're in a quadrant where you care a lot about somebody, but you're not direct, mm. they're not getting your feedback. And so you're kind of misleading them uh, in certain ways. So there's, you know, and then there's other, other mm -hmm. bad combinations, but uh, that, that is truly one of my favorite business books out there. I love that. I've heard of heard of it uh, a couple times this past month randomly. So it's probably on my list. Um, that's great. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Wow, there's a huge universe of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to choose something kind of random. So I love music, all types of music. And uh, one person alive who I would love to meet is Tom Morello, who is one of the founders and uh, guitarist of Rage Against the Machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he's uh, just a very intelligent person. He is uh, an activist for justice. Uh, and I think he uh, he's really innovative and creative too. He basically developed almost a, a new genre of music and new ways of playing the guitar mm -hmm. that were just unseen before. Um, he's very educated. He went to Harvard and, you know, sort of ended up as, as a, a founder of, of many, many uh, influential bands. So uh, I would love to sit down with him and, and just chat, maybe play a little guitar. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I would say super speed hmm. because mm -hmm. I, I like to do lots of things. And if I could get to where I needed to do that thing faster, <laughs> that would be very <laughs> beneficial to me. I love it. Um, question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? The fact that we still use pagers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a gen there are generations who don't even know what a pager is. <laughs> so good. Pagers and fax machines. Yeah, right? the fax machine. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, you, know, you know, someone's got to keep them in business. <laughs> yeah. oh. well, I mean, I can't, just, I can't even imagine, you know, the... <laughs> residents you know they're handed a pager and they're like what is this thing? Mm -hmm. my, my favorite i've seen residents with like carrying three or four pagers because they're oh, covering the whole team <laughs> yeah. wow wow you figure there would just be something better than that if, maybe, if only there was something right yeah. <laughs> maybe something we all carry around with us on a daily basis in our pockets yeah uh, that's great uh last question that we have mona this is a, a pandemic lockdown related question what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic so i did a lot more of things i did before mm -hmm. uh definitely but one thing i did take up. Uh, so when we we moved to Colorado just a few months before the pandemic, and I had very high hopes 
that I would finally get good at snowboarding. Mm. And, um, and I was not good. So, (laughs) So when the season ended abruptly, I was very upset. This was the year I was supposed to get good at this. And so I bought an electric longboard. Oh, cool. It was something I could do outside, socially distanced. And somebody told me that the, the movements are you know, similar. So you can practice on that. So I bought an electric longboard and all the padding you can imagine <laughs> and went out there and uh, had, had fun learning something new. And um, I, I'm not sure if it improved my snowboarding very much, but <laughs> it, it certainly was fun and it was a nice distraction. No, that's awesome. And now you're an expert at longboarding. So that's, that's, that's right. Like, I that's can now. <laughs> Wait, do you use that to travel to the hospital or? No, I, <laughs> I actually, uh, you know, because I'm sort of a middle-aged woman, I, <laughs> I do not want to get myself hurt or yeah. run over. And so I, uh, I just go to the park where the paths have no mm-hmm. cars, just people. And that's, that's where I hang out with it. Oh, that's, awesome. that's smart. I, I'd be the same, but I've seen people like longboarding in the middle of like Manhattan and I'm just like, oh, oh yes. my God, I, I couldn't do that. Yes. No, I, I am not, I'm not there. I'm mm-hmm. not there. Plus all the pads, putting the pads on and off would, would add way too much time to my commute. Right. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, well, awesome. Mona, being mindful of your time again, um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. If you like this podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit us at www.seamless.md. Mona, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Thanks for having me. It was great.